0: So I always tell people the focus of negotiation should be on things that have monetary value. The things that you can convert to monetary value is much easier for the company
1: to make a justification for. this episode, we're talking to Dan Space, aka Dan from HR, who's incredible on TikTok and has a wealth of experience in HR as an HR business partner, and he's got a real focus on compensation. So we end up talking about what you can and can't negotiate, parental leave, the top things you should negotiate for, why existing employees have a harder time getting more money than new hires. We talk about startups versus large companies, <laughs> the sort of ever going debate on thank you notes. We talk about like, what's the background? Check. So, there's this episode is action packed with a lot of really, really good stuff. We ended up going longer than I thought, but incredible discussion. So, I really hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, I am very excited to have this conversation. I am here with Daniel Space, AKA Dan from HR, but I don't like to do intros for people. So, Dan, you want to introduce yourself? I really don't. (laughs) I feel so arrogant every time I do
0: it. I'm like, ugh. Have I really become this type of person? Uh, no, but I'm, I'm Daniel, I spent a lot of years in HR and I, I got very privileged and very fortunate to understand how companies hire and what happens behind the scenes. So everything from how companies hire, how they build models, how org design looks like, what goes into promotion, what goes into compensation. And uh, in late 2020, I decided to start making content. I was in the right place at the right time that everyone really kind of resonated with it. Everyone really wanted a lot of information for job search. And there was a lot of bad advice out there. And so I kind of built a a pretty, uh, you know, a mildly successful following on on TikTok. I've been publishing a few articles and people have known me as like that guy from HR who debunks bad advice.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, it's a good spot to kick it off because our initial connection was you debunking some of our (laughs) advice. Uh, I thought about maybe playing it back for you. Oh, my God. Um. Do Do you even have it? Uh, you know, we tried to find it yesterday, but we couldn't find it. <laughs> so I think, but we'll use that as the basis to start a conversation, right? Because the thing about what I, I think struggle, that's the, difficult out in the market is like what is technically possible, which is kind of like the intersection of our debate, which is around like what you could negotiate for. Yeah. And kind of just like what's practical and also at the level, right? So in my particular position, when, when I was at WeWork, I was an executive and all the executives had very bespoke compensation packages. And so in that world, you can almost negotiate for anything, you know, within reason, of course. But then if you're like an intro, you know, fresh out of college person, the chances of you getting any of those things are pretty much zero, right? And so I was kind of like approaching it from that. So I'd love to talk about that, kind of like what this idea of like, what's probable versus what's possible. So as an example, one that comes up all the time is being able to get a different insurance package.
0: Or getting compensated if you don't take the health insurance
1: right and so I like I'd love to give people like a sense of that because again, it is possible, and we were sort of playing on that like these are all the things you could ask for, and you were just like, hey, this is like not realistic, not realistic. Some are like you called out as like law, you can't like give different ones, some you can, but like what what is the company thinking when some like you know what's their kind of like value system like yeah, we'll give on this, we'll give on this these are like no-goes, these we don't want to set precedent on, like what's a company thinking when they're deciding what to give ground on?
0: So I think it's a great question. And I first, I'm gonna, I want to call out a compliment um, because I've been known as the debunker. (laughs) And I had tried, I think by the time that um, I had been tagged in your video, I had sort of wanted to soothe my voice a little bit. I did not like that I had gotten a reputation where I was upsetting people and people were afraid to make content. And I'm like, I don't like that. Like, I don't mind debunking bad advice. I will forever be totally fine ripping on one salting and scam artists like them. But like for people that are just a few years out of college or just starting, like just trying to make content, I'm like, I don't want to ruin that. You know, I don't want to ruin their good time. Um, But what I noticed was people who knew the advice they were giving was bad, would default to clients, would default to, well, everyone is allowed to have a voice in their opinion and then would block me. And both you and, I forgot her name, um, that had done, Dina had um, reached out and said, hey, we would really value your feedback and you let us know what we did, right? I'm like, oh my God, like, this is exactly it. Like if I make a video on how to do marketing and a marketer says you actually didn't do this right, I would be like, oh, please tell me because you are the expert in this. Um, so that made me just have so much respect for you because I'm like, OK, so you are a job search tool that is actively seeking feedback from people that do this rather than, no, we know what we're doing. Please buy our thousand dollar product and our digital course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thanks for trying. We, we don't want to misinform folks.
0: Yeah, so I thought that was great. So then, to answer your question. I mean, obviously, it's going to be very annoying, but the answer is it depends. The smaller the company, the more flexible it can be. If you join a seven-person operation, you can negotiate whatever because at no like uh, everyone is has their own sort of thing, and there's no bar of consistency. The larger you get, the more you have to start being accountable for like the ERISA laws which manage benefits, FMLA, EEOC laws, Department of Labor laws, so that once you start reaching those sizes, you have to have consistency. So if something is offered to one person, you create a huge amount of risk if it's not offered to something else. So there's some easy ones like benefits. Like for a large company, you cannot negotiate anything for your benefits. Here's the three benefit packages. Any type of uh, benefit negotiation is just gonna be shot down. People say, oh, well, I'm on my husband's plan. It doesn't matter. The company is paying the same amount for the benefits anyway. Um, You cannot negotiate that under Erisa. But when you have something like daycare, which is only accessible to a certain level of population, and then you have people with, that don't have kids say, well, how come people with parents get this additional thing that's worth $6,000, but I don't? Those kind of lead into like these really kind of fun, gray, ambiguous areas.
1: So like healthcare, like one of the things I saw with healthcare, right, because everyone's like, do a different plan or get the money. Like at WeWork in particular, well, let me just say what we do at Teal, because I don't know what WeWork did, you know, but like we actually have like, Levels we've come of comp bands, and then we can actually, if someone's like in a different band, they get like, if you're a four, we just cover your insurance. If you're a five, we actually cover yours and your spouse. Someone could theoretically try to negotiate that they're not a four, they're a five. You know, like, are there ways that like, you know, like, can you ask those kinds of questions in an interview? Like, in, like, hey, do you guys actually have different packages for different seniority levels? So I'm going to opine you are opening yourself up to some potential
0: trouble later on because you've unintentionally set up a classic system to where that favors couples the higher level you are. So like and so those are potential risks down the road. I have never heard of that before. Um, there was one company I work with that I thought did a really great job of benefits. They tiered the benefit percentages based on the level. So like if you were an IC, the company paid 75% or um, like 90% rather. If you were a manager, the company paid like 80%. If you were a director the company paid 75%, your VP and above, the company paid 65%. So the higher you were, the more your contribution was to cover those that earned less. And I thought that that was actually a very egalitarian method.
1: Oh, that's cool. That's kind of like opposite of the expected.
0: Yeah, very much so. And I, th- I was like, I've never seen this before and I thought it was really great. So I think now I am an experimenter and an innovator, so I love hearing new plans. So I'm like, that's kind of really cool. But I'm like, but of course my HR mind is like, where's the flaw Um, and where are you gonna be at risk? And the idea that like at one level, you only cover you, but at another level you cover spouses, potentially opens up a door for classism that's focusing on that um, people that are in relationships may get preferential treatment.
1: That makes a ton of, so I think the way we technically do it is just like a dollar amount, but, now that you say that, you know, I've thought about that. Like, you know, like that's something we think a lot about is like parental leave. Is there a version where, yeah, I decide I don't want to have kids, you never get access to that benefit. Like, so you just like, hey, it's like every three years people can get the equivalent of the parental leave, like 12 weeks off or something. Right, because I do think that's one of the tricky things that companies are trying to solve for is like fairness, but also navigating what's norm. And being competitive in the market. It is. And I found it really funny. So I have a very,
0: very, very good friend of mine who was at Google when he was single and he was like on top of the, the anti-parental rights and like, it's not fair. Like you guys leave at five and we have to cover your work. And what, and like the, I think Google was giving some sort of additional benefit. And he would, I mean, he was like, like he was, how can I bring this up? This is not fair. And now he's married and has a kid. And now he's like, <laughs> we need more parental rights. I was only given 10 weeks of paid father leave. How can I expose it? And I'm like, I'm like, okay, so this is clearly a very life-changing event. So one thing I try to, to tell people like, I'm a gay man, I'm never gonna have children. I will never get a child benefit. Anytime someone kind of brings up and says, well, it's not fair that this person gets parental leave. I'm like, it is not a paid vacation. Um, You know, this right. person is not in the, the like this is a major life event that that, is essentially like full-time care of someone that's even like I would compare it to taking care of someone who's elderly. It's someone that constantly requires attention. It is not like you are on vacation. One thing that I do really suggest companies do is like unpaid PTO with sabbaticals after a few years um because I do think the idea of taking a nice little chunk of time off is good. I always just get a little bit aggravated with people who who are who get offended that they don't get like a daycare reimbursement that people that have kids do and they're like you know, if if um this was one person I was talking to and she was like my total compensation would technically be $168,000 if I got, you know, I figured out that the daycare costs is $8,000, so you guys owe me $8,000 because I don't have a kid. I'm like, this ugh, stop. Um, you know, and to me, I would just rather celebrate the fact that the company wants to do things like that. Um I mean, the United States is horribly third world as it relates to how we treat parents. Um, and I think we're getting much, much better. Um, and to me, it's just there's always going to be something that's a little bit better. and the the more you focus on what someone else has, the the more miserable you're going to be,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good way to think about it. I think under optimize for where you are at that moment in your life because also those things are negotiable later. I think that's also I think a lot of people put a lot of weight into that. You do have the highest amount of leverage before you sign the offer letter. So I agree with that. But you can get more equity later. You can, You know, and when you have life-changing events, you can't do that. You can make those changes. But what would you say are then, other than base salary, and people could watch your TikTok and get this, but well, let's go ahead and shortcut them. What are like the top three things that people could negotiate for beyond base salary?
0: So I always tell people the focus of negotiation should be on things that have monetary value. The things that you can convert to monetary value is much easier for the company to make a justification for. So what I'll tell people is something like, you can't say, I'm not gonna be on my husband's plan, so can I just get that reimbursed? Versus, hey, I'm going to be costing the company less, could I get a one-time bonus that accounts for that? Um, so essentially, don't ask for things that are gonna cause an inequity, where because cash by itself is distributed. So people negotiate base, people can negotiate bonus, people negotiate sign-on bonus, people can negotiate equity. Anything that has a cash incentive tied to it, you can negotiate. Anything that doesn't comes with risk unless you can put it into a financial thing. So what I always tell people is whatever that value is, try to negotiate for that um, versus trying to say, you know. Um, so one thing, uh, you know, I was at a company that was very strict about levels on vacation. And one person was like, look, like I'm used to five weeks of vacation. I don't want to go back to four weeks of vacation. So like uh, we, we ended up negotiating, giving her an extra twelve hundred dollars in her, you know, um, in her, her salary to account for that. So we didn't want to make the exception and have her be the one senior manager that had five. But we we uh, so we couldn't negotiate that. But rather, by encouraging her to negotiate what the the financial amount was, it allowed us to sort of uh, to give the same benefit. But in a way, that was just far more fair because everyone negotiates on cash.
1: And like in her case, if she wanted it, she could just take a week unpaid and you made it up in cash. Yeah, because she got that extra pay. Correct. Yeah, Because I think I see that also. It's like, oh, try to try to negotiate for more vacation, or I just think like a lot of those end up, it's like negotiating on these like worst case scenarios that aren't even really gonna happen. I feel like a lot of people get bent out of shape trying to get something that they don't actually even want. They just wanna win somehow. Yeah, it's like on principle, then more so the need.
0: And I have to say, and I know this is gonna be a very unpopular opinion, we get so aggravated with that because we're like, oh my God, like I remember there was one time, two years ago, I ended up making a TikTok about it. This person was going back and forth for three weeks, was negotiating like nickel and diming everything. And at one point, they were they had asked for an additional $150 to cover one month of a sell charge and I'm like, if I give you $500, will you just sign the offer? If I have to review this one more, if I have to see your effing name cross my thing for an additional exception. And so what I really try to tell people is it, there are certain people that I think just love the thrill of the negotiation. And there are certain people that are very terrified by it. Whatever it is, the company is going to work with you, but you have to be reasonable about it. What I always tell people is don't go to the well more than twice. Okay. At that, like, that's normally a good number. You can, you normally get one pushback to go back. Now for you, now, how many com- how many plays do you have now? We are 15. I'm curious, like, are, are you seeing the things that you talk about? Like, are you starting to see it in your employees? Like, is, are people utilizing the techniques that you're teaching, like for negotiation, as you hire new people?
1: We front run a lot of those things. Like we have moved away from putting ranges in job descriptions, right? When you put a range, the company is like, well, really like someone would have to be like stellar to get the top of the range, but we're probably realistically thinking the middle of the range. And the person comes in and like, well, I'm for sure gonna get the top of the range. So he said, you know what, let's remove that ambiguity. It's just a single number. And, you know, we used to do like localized because we're fully remote. So if you're in one state, and I'm like, you know what, this is stupid, this is more work than it's worth, same rates for the whole country. I don't care if you live in a small town or you live in New York City, it's the same. We're not paying New York City rates like some companies choose to do, but you know, maybe 80% of that. And that's just our number, we put it out there. Now what we will negotiate is on what we call level and step on our comp grid. So if you don't, we have it budgeted as a 3-1, and you really like meet the criteria of what we would call a 3-2, then okay, that's a you've moved in the grid based on negotiating for more. And then it's not like squeaky wheel gets the grease, which is what we see a lot of times happen. It's like the people who ask for it get it. And so we're really trying to avoid that as well. So there's some of those things that we just kind of get ahead of and we just try to speak about it well in advance so it doesn't come up.
0: I find it so fascinating given like your topic area. I would like, a- I'm just so fascinated, like, if you go into like the annual compensation cycle, if everyone is like watching my TikToks and your TikToks to say, okay, here's how to negotiate. <laughs> everyone is just using that strategy. <laughs> it's sort of like a meta
1: commentary to how you do things. Well, we also, some of those things we just don't do also. Like we don't do yearly reviews and you know, if something's up, just like talk about it now. And if someone's kicking ass, give them money now. You know, and feel like, you know, I just remember like when I was working at a bigger company, that period of time of like the 360s And then the calibrations and all the sort of backdoor conversations of negotiating like amongst executives who gets more budget. It's all just such a game. And like the more you know how to play the game, then, you know, you make it work. But everyone's always like, I remember when I when I was consulting to a large public company and they'd be like, hey, it's the end of the quarter. We've got budget left. What projects could we do? I'm just like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, yeah. if we don't use it, we lose it. And I was like, okay, like as a consultant, I like to be the beneficiary of that. But I was like, wait a second, we've kind of lost the plot. Like, and we have all these systems that we end up like needing to comply and conform to. I get it, companies are big and complicated, but I don't know, I'm trying as hard as I can for as long as I can to not succumb to any of those.
0: I appreciate it. And like I said, I, lo- I the way most companies think of compensation needs an overhaul. Um, and from your familiarity with it, for people that are not familiar with it, it is a horrifying process for HR people and leaders because... The board, you know, the CHRO usually goes to the CEO and some comp data and says, okay, so in order to do all the things, in order to give everyone a good merit increase, and in order to account for like 10% for market adjustments and to account for 10% growth of promotions, we're going to need $17 million. And the board's like, great, here's 8 million, make it happen. And we're like, okay, so no one's happy. And like we're fight like the amount ima- I am so proud of so many leads who who literally just gave up their merit increase. They're like, I don't want to get I want my employees to deserve it. I don't want my there was one time even at, at one of my other companies where collectively eleven leaders in one team came up to me and said, We are all giving up our bonuses. We don't want to know how much it is in total, but we want it fairly distributed among the team and we want you and the head to work on it together to make sure that it's given to everyone. And I was like that's amazing. And we were able to, and like with the, the CEO, I remember was so impressed. We were able to kind of get them, sort of like well, they all got something too, sort of in recognition for it. We tried to keep it hush hush. Cause now everyone was like, oh, I'll give up my bonus too. And it's like, you know, the, the path of hell is paved with the best of intentions. Cause then everyone's like, well, what about this? What about this? But to me, it just showed that the compensation cycle was just fundamentally broken. You can't go to the board and say, hey, we need this in order to do this. And they're like, great, here's half, go have fun. Um, and just managing disappointment across everything.
1: Something that I feel like there's a lot of, anger around and and rightfully so because I feel like the history continues to prove itself is why can companies pay new hires more (laughs) than give people raises for the people that are there and we just see it time and time and time again and then you miraculously give your notice and they're like hey we found 20k we found it yeah Yeah, why you you being on like sort of the behind the scene discussions like because I'm sure you're advocating for it because you know how the movie's going to end. But like, what's the pushback companies have with this? It's two different budgets. So a hiring budget is different than the compensation and
0: salary budget. The other element to it is, so the the fact that it's in two different budgets is is dumb to me because either way, it, the company's paying for it out of pocket. The bigger thing is that it opens up too many doors of inconsistency. So one company tried it and they were like you know what we're we're going to give everyone a 12% increase like why would we go out to the market like let's let's pay our current employees and then they started having a cash flow problem because giving a 12% increase to four people who are potentially thinking of resigning is manageable giving a 12% increase to 25,000 employees is a lot of money um and if you don't have the right cash flow for it then you create all sorts of problems. And then there was all sorts of issues as it related to, well, how is it fair that this person is getting 12% because I carried their work and this person was on an LOA for eight months, so shouldn't they get 4%? And I was already below, so why am I not getting 16%? So no matter what you do, someone is unhappy and it's going to cause some sort of inequity. The biggest issue why companies cannot keep up with market adjustment is because of the sheer amount of cost. I personally believe a lot of uh, the executives should like cut their bonuses in half uh, you know, to better fund it, you know, maybe maybe give six to eight percent, you know, instead of keeping the six point five million dollar bonus CEO of uh, whatever that company is that went viral.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, it was a furniture company. I forget yeah, the name. The furniture
0: company. Yeah. But that's essentially it. It's, it has the sheer amount of cost to try to bring everyone to consistent to market. It would completely decimate a company, despite the
1: fact that they have it in the recruiting budget. A tricky thing about it, though. Now, you know, sort of putting my company hat on is the market doesn't only go up it goes down, but salaries don't go down, right? Salaries go down in extreme, like in COVID, I was on a bunch of founder lists, wrote, like, hey, look, we're doing 10% cuts across the board, and I think everyone got it, but nobody likes money taken out of their pocket, right? And so the market fluctuates, and that is a tricky thing in our system, right? Like markets go up, markets go down, salaries kind of only go up. Have you seen that ever like dealt with in an interesting way?
0: I would say for almost all corporate roles, the market will always go up. The only time I saw it was very fascinating where I saw a shift, it was like 2008 to 2010, where print started to die in favor of mobile. And it was the very first time, like when you, so when you look at like these market research surveys, you always just see it goes up um, because the value of the roles go up, company prices go up, everything is just a circle and everything increases. And it was the first time I ever saw red and it was the people that could do print advertising Actually saw a decrease. It was now considered less va- someone who had that skill set was considered less valuable than they have been the year before. So you I, like there's no standard corporate role that I've ever seen decrease or like depreciate like that. Um, instead they tend to evolve. Um, so like uh, marketing, for example, has kind of evolved into influencer marketing and nano influence and nano influencer marketing and event marketing. Um, So you don't usually you don't have the print advertising marketing. So that skill set sort of evolved. So but th- so th- what they're doing is different. But the basic concept of how it is they building relationships with their customers hasn't.
1: Another thing that I see, like compensation, super complicated. I know it's one of your expertise. So that's why we're kind of like drilling into it. But people want to do research and they want to look at what a market you know rate is. But I just think that there's a lot of things that go into how to research compensation. Ultimately. It's hyper local. It's to the company, right? A company who is growing heavily through the use of social media organically, well, that's a very valuable role to them. A company like OpenAI that's just like growing and it's pure engineering, that's a a role that's very low valued. I mean, they don't even have it open on their website. But like an engineer is incredibly highly valuable to them. And so I how do you recommend people like really understand what's most important to a particular company, because ultimately, like if another company is willing to pay 80k for a social media manager, it's kind of irrelevant.
0: I am the first person to say we are in the strangest paradox and what I like to do, especially because I am so impressed with Gen Z and with Gen Alpha, they're so amazing. I'm like, I wish I was like half as smart and intelligent and as powerful as you were. Like when I was 20, I was like eating glue and painting and playing saxophone in side corners. And I have like 19 year olds on my TikTok that are raising $3 million for abortion and um, and taking down Republican senators on Twitter. I'm like, I'm embarrassed for myself, but you guys are amazing. Um, so what I, what I do is I, I vocalize and, and verbalize how messed up this is, because this is extraordinarily messed up. It is, it is as broken a system as our education system. Um, but the more everyone understands it, the more they're going to push to change it. So this is how it works. All public data that you can research is not valid and is not verified. I can go on Glassdoor and say, make a million dollars. I can go on PayScale, do the same thing. I can go on Levels.FYI. The Levels has that check where you they, they do the offer letter. So it's definitely more reasonable, but there are such small populations that it's almost meaningless. And it's mostly engineers who are obsessed with their numbers.
1: Yeah. And it's like mostly FANG companies. It's like the- Exactly. It's a very. It's like the rare air of function and comp. Exactly. They're a great company. I think they're doing super cool, but it's not.
0: Yeah, it it offers a small amount of population, a small amount of insight that can be trusted. But it, so you know, uh, you could have fifteen engineers submit their offer letters to Spotify. And then you can have an engineer look at that and then say, hey, I'm gonna use this as my guidance, but not take into account anything like location, level, what team they're on, any kind of fluctuation in stock that did any sort of level change. Um, And those 10 engineers might've all been paid at the very high level, but out of 800 engineers, like someone new is gonna come in lower. So this is how it works. And when I learned it, I'm like, this is such an evilly brilliant system. So uh, there's like five major companies in the world that manage compensation for large companies. Um, and what they've essentially done is that they have unified job family agreement. And this is why anytime someone says, oh, HR doesn't know how to do anything. And I'm like, really, really performance marketer? Cause I can tell you exactly what you do. Cause I've studied 15 different versions of your job family and I've built it across seven different industries. You want to tell me what I do? So they have alignment and they have a sterilized leveling system up to 10 levels, management, director, VP, executive, with very clearly defined levels of what scope, responsibility, and impact are with the agreement that every company has some sort of 80% match to those roles. And then you can't look at it if you're public, but if you're a company, you can purchase it only if you give your data. So when you, the, I can't wait, like I said, Gen Z or Gen Alpha is gonna tear this apart. And when people see the market research, the level of detail, I'm a data geek and I'm a compensation nerd. I can get lost looking through like a Radford or Culpepper survey. Like I can look for executive salespeople within a five mile radius of Chicago that sell primarily to pharmaceutical accounts, Uh, with less than seven years of experience to a two to $4 billion industry that spend 80% of their time hunting and 20% of their time gathering and get a huge range of very specified data, including how many companies participated, what types of companies participated in it, and utilizing all that information is how companies then determine their market range. And that's why when people say, do your research, I'm like, please don't say that because there's no research you can do that's going to be as good as what a company has access to and what a company has access to will help them determine what they want. So I always tell people there's six pillars of compensation. Um, Everyone knows the basics, level, job, family, industry, location but that hidden one is you have to work in an industry that places a high value on that job family. So I tell people like software engineers in FANG companies hit that golden ratio of all six. That's why they make so much. If you work marketing in a FANG, you're not making as much because tech doesn't value marketing that much, but they're switched if you look at CPG and pharma. Marketing people are paid very high as well as brand people. I mean, being a legalized drug dealer pays very well. No one is going to, to Pfizer for their tech stack. Like, you know, engineers are paid okay, And that's where I think public sites like Glassdoor can help directionally, because if you put in your role and then look at different industries, you can see
1: where there's a jump. Yeah, the industry, because I've I've even heard you talk about like in defense, right, like- Oh, yeah. yeah. Huge money. Now, (laughs) now, you know, you guys like, do you want to work there? But you know, those companies make money pretty consistently and they pay a lot of money.
0: I had a friend who was director of compensation for a private insurance firm. When she showed me the compounded interest of their private equity, I'm like, these people at FANG are making pennies, <laughs> like work for the government and private, and like and and what I normally tell people is work in industries that make a lot of money. Now there are some exceptions, like enter. I can't stand entertainment and music are are two of the worst because they're billion dollar industries. All of that goes to the performers, and they treat everyone else like crap because. People are just excited to be sort of close to it and think that that's some sort of elitism. But like, w- yeah, working in the Department of Defense, anything that has to do with the military, anything the government spends a lot of money on, it typically has very high compensation.
1: What research should people do? Because it's not like glass, it's like, what is that like second level understanding, right? I mean, is it like looking at the markets? Like, I mean, not this world only works with like publicly traded companies, but like what companies are performing, what companies aren't performing. I feel like people take a very laissez-faire, or, low effort, because I don't like the word lazy, approach into like researching the companies, right? If you were about to deploy, let's talk about a $100,000 salary, right? For a year, you're gonna work there three years, that's $300,000. you're about to make a $300,000 investment, you would research the heck out of that, I would think. Right? but And that's essentially what you're doing with your salary. And I feel like a lot of times people don't, they don't really know who the CEO of the company is. They don't look at their kind of stock performance. They're you know, assuming they're publicly traded, but even the private company, if they're a startup, go to Crunchbase, go to PitchBook, really understand this company, look at their product launches. They kind of just like use the JD and go. And I think that, that people are missing out by not doing that.
0: I agree, but I understand at the same time. And again, I feel like I just got super, super, super lucky. My career path taking me up through WebMD was essentially random company after random company. I happened to get hired with American Express, which opened doors, led me to the children's place. So I got some retail, led me to M&M's World, which was a disaster. Retail HR is the worst thing ever. I got six months consulting gig at Price Waterhouse, And then I got to WebMD, where I stayed for about five years. All of that experience, though, gave me enough experience to work for Electronic Arts. As a video gamer, doing a job that I loved, I was like, oh, my God, you can love your job? And then that led to me working for Spotify and that then led to me like the idea of doing a job that I really love in an industry and in a company that I place so much value on to me is tremendous. And then I sit back and I realize, oh man, people got to like, I can't imagine how excited can you be for insurance or like rectal thermometer creation or like, like there, there's so many companies that their products are probably so boring. And I'm like, of course, you're just gonna come in and think this is a job, and I think that's why there's no effort to research it because they don't care. They don't, they don't care who the CEO is, they're not invested, they're not making eleven million dollars if the company sells 10 more products or penetrates India, they're gonna make their standard 85 thousand one one way or another. It's a job, they get benefits. So I think we do a bad job of helping inform people that there are ways to find things that you are going to enjoy or companies and industries you're going to enjoy, but I can understand why there's a hesitant like all right, I guess this is another med device company that sells someone, I, I met with someone, that was the first time I ever heard what they did. Essentially, they create contracts for pharmaceutical companies to get better discounts to senior citizen um, living situations. I was like, I've never heard of this. And I'm like, this has got to be one of the most boring jobs ever. I cannot imagine being an excited seller saying, do this and we, you know, we'll get you uh, you know, 10% off your Zoloft for all of your senior citizens. So like all of this to say that I really just want people to be far more informed and take a more active approach in their career, because there are a lot of great things that I think people can discover that can also be pretty financially stable. But I think if people are just like, I just need a job, then I think to your point, they're just going to be like, I'm going to research enough so I can answer the interview questions and hopefully it pays me enough and I get good benefits.
1: So that takes me to sort of short term versus long term thinking on your career and whether you're doing it strategically or opportunistically or reactively. And- I always sort of struggle to have this conversation because it, it comes with, I think embedded in it is privilege. You know, and I kinda, as much as I like to say like, hey, it's meritocracy, you know, hard work, put in the hard work and you can get it done. Look, like, there's some people that could work their fingers to the bone and it won't happen because they weren't in the right place at the right time and they didn't have proximity to access. So now you just said you got a couple logos on your resume, which then opened you up to work at a company you were really excited about. If you could have known then what you know now, and you are so impressed with Gen Z and Gen Alpha, like how should people be thinking strategically about like the logos on their resume and the value that has beyond dollars? Cause I see a lot of people get worked up and bent out of shape over these like very, right? It's like, I wanna get 67K and if I don't, you know, instead of 64. And it's like, first of all, the fact that we use a yearly number is like the best, best trick we ever pulled on anybody because it's irrelevant. We get paid bi-weekly, you know? (laughs) So it's like, let's look at that number. Why are we looking at it? So when you, I often tell people, it's like, look, look at it at the increment in which you're gonna get paid and see if that's really gonna make a difference. And if that's the kind of like the hill you wanna die on. And sometimes they lose sight of like, I could work at this really great company that's gonna really pay off for me. But in my message to people is like, bet on yourself. Like, don't assume it's not gonna go well and you're never gonna get a raise again but it's also a fine balance. So like, how do you think about that? Like the value of where you work or or kind of these like tangential values that are not comp or like not in your offer letter. So what's interesting is Rob Cancel and I had an amazing conversation about this. And
0: I found it very impressive that he was like, you have changed my mind on something. I've never thought of that way. I'm like, oh my God, I impressed Rob. Cause he, <laughs> his his primary focus is in startups and, um, and VC backed startups. And what I told him was, VC-backed startup companies look for people that have VC-backed startup experience. Working for a large household name, is one of the most valuable things you can have on your resume. Familiarity bias is a thing. What I tell people and what I try to recommend to college students, especially, um, because they're so easily exploitable, so nonprofits target them specifically, they're like, you'll gladly accept $28,000 and and work three three jobs because it's good for the people. Um, you know, meanwhile, the board is walking away with a million dollars a piece. But whereas if you can get a household name on your resume, that is one of the most valuable things that you can ever do to your career. Anyone who has one of the fangs, who has one of the, the F-100, one of the big banks, there's an automatic attachment that they are going to be good because they work for companies that have demonstrated consistent amounts of success. Um, so what I tell people is I think everyone should have a little bit of turn around everything else, like work for a small company, work for a medium-sized company, work in different industries because you'll get really well-rounded. But one of my biggest urgencies is get into a larger company as soon as possible because that is going to open up so many doors versus you know, a small company to small company to small company, because small companies will hire from large ones, large ones do not hire from small ones consistently.
1: What about, like another thing I tell people is like, think about your career like an investor, like I'm sort of in the startup ecosystem, and I feel like the, the one of the best case scenarios is you bet on a company, before, like, sure, we'll say Stripe, right? Stripe's not public yet, maybe not a household name, in the tech industry it is, but it could eventually be a publicly traded company that's incredibly successful and super high performing, but maybe Stripe five years ago, right? Kind of like betting on a company that you think will be big. Cause I feel like those, right? Like the household name now, if you worked at salesforce.com 20 years ago, that's even like a whole nother level of value that you like picked winners and you were there for those early days. Or Uber, yeah.
0: So I can appreciate and respect people who wanna do that. To me though, if I'm betting on a company, I need to be one of the leaders for it and not one of the people that gets one of the trickle-down rewards after busting my ass for ADI. And I remember um, when I was at Electronic Arts, this is where Uber was in lockdown. And Uber was just in this weird stasis where no one knew how it was going and all the employees wanted to leave and they were all terrified to leave because if they went public, a lot of them would become millionaires, but it was in stasis. And so we actually put a lockdown on trying to recruit anyone from Uber because they'd be like, I don't know, I I, I can't accept the role. Um, And when I think back to that, I, I always thought I would never want to be in this situation. Like if it wasn't my personal company that I put my blood, sweat and tears in, that's my investment to make. I don't want my employees to feel like they have to feel that way. Of course, if they're part of the mission and they're enthused by it. But like the bigger I get, the less impacted I would imagine that they feel. Um, So, if people, you know, and I think there are people that thrive in that environment and people who do like that. I just think it becomes very easy to be taken advantage of if it's not done carefully. So, like, you know, very manipulative CEOs of startups can be like, you know, you're going to be part of this great launch and that enthuses everyone. And then they still get the same $65,000 and then it doesn't go IPO. No one gets anything. And then the CEO gets a $2 million buy. I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) So, wait, now let me reverse the question on you. Like, knowing what you know now, would you make any changes to your career? Uh, uh, no. Do you think you would have gone this path?
1: Yeah. You know, for anyone who doesn't know me, who's listening, I worked at WeWork for (laughs) four years, (laughs) you know, a little bit of sort of my hiring experience. And yeah, you know, I I, I consulted to them for three, eventually sold our company to them. There's definitely things I, at the macro, no, at the micro, yes. That's a process. There's a, a ton of things I would have done differently when we sold the company to WeWork that was mostly an equity deal, you know, the way we negotiated, like we got equity for our 65, 63 employees from case, but we could have done that better. We totally botched like the diligence process. And so, I mean, I can do a whole episode on that, but at the macro, no. Cause then, you know, being, yeah, like I was an executive at WeWork and I got there right before what was gonna be like a doubling of the valuation. I was able to sell stock throughout Many of the secondaries I learned, I, I know all about RSUs, ISOs, NSOs. I got an MBA. I got paid to take an MBA, and you know, I was part of the person at the end when I when we were setting up comp infrastructure. Like ran comp and recruiting for Goldman Sachs. Like I was just getting access to such incredible people, and you know, being in the executive room. I mean, I designed. I took an org from. 300 people to 4,000 people. And, you know, we're designing like matrix orgs and all sorts, you know, went from local to global. Saw all, I I wish I would have read Andy Grove's high performance management then. He's like, oh, every company has the global local fight or regional local or, you know, functional. And it's like, every company ends as a matrix. And I'm a big proponent for matrix organizations, but I was fighting everyone there. Probably one of the reasons I left. But anyways, yeah, look, I learned a ton and it's sort of, it's gotten me where I am now which I love what I'm doing now. It's probably my favorite job I've had to date, and I hope I can continue to say that. But um, yeah, like, again, I but I, from my perspective, I'm not sure I would pass that on to anyone else that worked at WeWork, right? Um, my sort of equity position was large enough that even though I just read an article today, it's like a 43 cents or something. You know, I sold my equity a while ago, but it was still well good enough that I did, I did well. My family's benefit, you know, for other people, no. And if they joined even a year after me, the strike price on their equity is totally different, and, but they really bought into the mission. But I would, I do think the majority of people would tell you, because also later we were paying better as a company, so their comp was still good. Now, could they have gotten more if things would have gone sort of as promised? 100%, but I, I think the experience, the connections, you know, I think a quarter of the people that work at Teal were ex we workers. Like I met some of the best people ever in my life, and some of my best friends today are people that I would not have met had I not done that. So I could sit here and sulk and complain, but if I look at like the opportunities that it gave me, the people that I got access to, 100% I would do it over again in a heartbeat.
0: That's awesome, that's good to hear.
1: You know, there's some people I would prefer not to talk to (laughs) Ever again. (laughs) But you know, that's gonna happen. Okay, we both talked to a lot of people out there job seeking let's give the behind the scenes on this. Cause I think that there is a lot of um, conjecture and opinion, especially as we are going through, would oh, would like a generational transition on like what's normal, right? So one of your favorite topics, thank you notes, but we will use it, we will use it as a, as kind of like a straw man for a broader discussion, right? Like if I were to ask my mom, like, hey mom, what do you think about thank you notes? My mom's 72. She's like, well, absolutely. That's the polite thing to do, right? And I think there's a difference between like, What people should do because the market says you have to versus that doesn't you can still do it if you want or the idea of like standing out. And I feel like a lot of your contention is like anyone who says, if you don't send a thank you note, I'm not going to hire you. Well, you are absolutely wrong and that's terrible. But then the person says, hey, I want to send one. isn't like, hey, stop. Don't do that. And it's like these kind of like shoulds versus coulds you know, and kind of like how the market responds to them.
0: And I love it. The idea of talking about things that don't have a clear answer are so fascinating to me. Um, So to me, my very clear position, especially because people just repeat things and they just parrot them because that's what they've heard. But anytime someone says, well, you know, if I'm stuck between the choice of two candidates, the person that sent the thank you note sticks out. I'm like, tell me a situation where that actually happened. And no one can. I'm like, you usually have four or five really, really good candidates. And there's one that sticks out. And then if that really is your measurement, that is a really bad leadership decision because you didn't make a decision based on someone demonstrating more skill, than someone demonstrating experience. One person remembered an arbitrary piece of homework that they potentially got access to because of privilege, the other person maybe didn't. So my thought is what I would like it to do is, in my ideal world of Daniel Utopia, would be it is never considered as a condition of employment. However, I would like managers to inform candidates of this, saying if you would like to send a thank you note, do so under these conditions. It felt organic. You want to say thank you. Um, I have been absolutely charmed by certain interviews. I have been absolutely blown away by, like, I had interviewed with uh, Sequoia, uh, the the benefits app, and their head of HR blew my mind. And I sent her a note saying, no matter what happens, like this was the most one of the most delightful conversations I've ever had. And I don't send thank you notes. I want the candidates to have a good sense of comfort that this is not some sort of hidden test that there's not going to be some sort of preferential treatment, whether or not you do or not. And if you feel so inclined, great. Um, And if
1: not, there's no difference one way or another. But those people who will rule you out do exist, right? So there's kind of like a little bit of a like, us sort of arguing for the world we'd like to see. The utopia versus the current. (laughs) Versus the real, right? So like, are we doing people a disservice by saying like, don't send one? Because we don't know if that person on the receiving end would knock them out.
0: Yeah, so to me, I think of it like this. My one is, do you want to work for someone who views that level of administrative nonsense as a reason to choose or to disqualify a candidate? But to me, my bigger push is this. If you are a manager who's going to make a determination on whether or not someone sends a thank you note, it is up to you to inform your candidates of this. And I think that that is a fair ask, especially because when when I was interviewing, at, you know, at
1: the age of 23, 24, it was one or two interviews tops. I hear you, but we can't just like wave a magic wand and have all managers think that, right? So it's like, we're giving advice, like that advice feels to me like it's advice on a world that I'd like for it to be, right? But we do know that there are those people out there who, and I hear you on like, hey, if that's what, but I think it's a little bit more than that. I think that is like cutting a little, She's like, well, it's an administrative thing, right? People are like, well, they're not considerate. And like, one thing I tell people is, if you're in a customer facing role, like, that's the kind of hospitality they're going to expect from you. So I would imagine that's going to be a criteria for them. A CTO probably isn't going to care. A CTO is probably going to be annoyed by it. And so you just don't know, but better to, you know, I like to say, like better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. So I kind of like, from a risk management perspective, the loss is little by not doing it.
0: I fundamentally agree, but if that is our mindset, nothing ever changes. So what I prefer to say is, be aware that there are people that make these decisions, and so I my push is not necessarily towards candidates. My push is towards managers. Tell your candidates whether or not you want them to send a thank you note, because the more that those conversations are happening, the more that I can I can at least sleep a little bit better at night that the conversations are happening at the right levels. Because the one thing I, that I can't, anytime I talk about it on LinkedIn, and you've challenged me on it before, and on TikTok, and I get it. But what about that one person that does? Is it not worth the risk to just go on ChatGPT and get a thank you note template and send it just to make sure I didn't get that one that 0.01%? And yes, you are absolutely right, but that means it's never going to change. And so and I don't it shouldn't be on candidates to change. Like that needs to come from companies. So I appreciate larger tech companies that say no cover letters, no thank you notes. And I want more companies to adapt to that. And what I what I do really like though is that just even having the conversation to me is beneficial. The fact that candidates are asking and involving themselves in the conversation, I think are, is great because they're taking a far more active um, control instead of saying, okay, so now I have to send a thank you note and I've sent a thank you note to this guy. And now I have to f-. remember one thing that I did in an interview on this versus, wait, should I be sending a thank you note? Um, especially because now we have managers coming out saying, I will disqualify a candidate sends a thank you note because it feels like it's ass kissy. Um, so like that that's all of a sudden we got a, you know a new type of
1: person here. I was talking to an investor once and he's like, I really prefer you not send me a follow-up because I don't want to have to write you again. And it wasn't even like, he wasn't being nasty. It was just like, that's just, I want to minimize the amount of time. And so that part, like, so if we're, you know, this show is called The Hiring Behind the Scenes, and we want to cover both sides. The advice to companies would be, be as forward about it as possible. Because one of the things that I'm trying to combat in our actions, less than sort of our guidance, is no surprises and like no tricks. I don't think tricks are actually the way you unearth quality, right? So, like, we actually send our interview questions in advance. I love that you do that, by the way. I love that you do that. We're cutting it back a teensy bit on some more, like, practical exercises. Like, so our engineers don't send, like, the coding problems in advance of a live, like, coding exercise. But anything that's, like, conversational, I'm like, why would we not send that in advance?
0: By the way, Ben, before you continue, I want to make sure I call it out. Huge props to you for paying for paid work. I think that is... That to me has you standing out as like one of my favorite employers. It's like you and a food bank of Canada, or like the two companies that have advertised that you do you pay candidates for work done for the interview process.
1: We did it when we did take homes for that one. We are not doing it for the interview, like the time of the interview. No, I just meant the same home homework. Yeah, for sure. But even that is like I've stopped doing it because even no matter what amount you pay, it's not enough. No, and then I always wonder like what is the value of the homework? What what are you trying to get? So we've stopped doing them, and we're moving towards like a hybrid of a live exercise. And so we're trying to take some cues from our technical, from our engineering interview, and actually bringing it to every function. Like as an example, like if I'm going to hire a performance marketer, it's like, all right, cool, let's go. Log into Google, and let me watch you buy an ad. Oh, it's really cool, actually. Yeah, it's like it's not totally real in the sense that, like, on your day to day, you wouldn't have someone over your shoulder. So it is, it's not realistic in terms of undue stress. But if I sat with you, even though I would probably make you anxious. And I was like, hey, look, do a salary research for me in Radford. I'm pretty sure you'd knock it out of the park.
0: I actually had this experience. um, And what's funny is I'm very glad it didn't work out. I was a little disappointed when I didn't get the role because I got really far, but I interviewed with (laughs) better.com and I have it on very good authority that everyone wanted to hire me, except that the CTO who I would be partnering with was very close with the head partner that I worked with at Spotify, who I did was not necessarily on the best of terms with, and just sort of got, I got the run around message that there wasn't necessarily the best feedback, which I was like, that sucks, but I get it. But the head of HR had exactly that, like within five, and I thought he gave me no preparation and he opened uh, something up and said, here's five problems, walk me through how you solve it. Here's the first one compensation bans, um, uh, especially investing in machine learning. How would we handle this? Uh, What potential inequity does it cause? What kind of cost savings would it be? How would we tell the leaders to inform their employees? And I'm like, oh, oh, we're just working. And I found that to be a far more engaging style interview. I wish I would have gotten a little prep for it, Mm -hmm. but I actually found it to be a far more engaging, entertaining, and far more thoughtful interview because I was seeing how he worked I was seeing the levels of tools that he had. I was seeing what their process was and it wasn't conversational, it was action.
1: So we just did the first one with that we've sort of like transferred the engineering. We did it with a designer. And I sent like what we were gonna do in advance. Like, hey, we're gonna critique a website together and then we're gonna wireframe it. I didn't tell them which one. And then I said, we're gonna design something together and we're gonna like, I'm gonna watch you in Figma. But I didn't tell them exactly what we were going to design. So I kind of laid out everything that was going to happen. I just sort of withheld that last little bit so we could kind of see the kind of real time. Because I, I think the whole, like, whenever I post, we send interview questions in advance. People are like, what about how they think on their feet? I was like, unless you're an EMT, I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> like, I don't need to know how a designer Things on their this other video, you know, it's like not a criteria for the job. For like the one percent of the time that something might happen, I just don't see like why that's like the ninety percent of the like, traditional interview process.
0: Do you feel that that style and methodology has helped you get better candidates as a result? As your employees will
1: be listening to this, <laughs> uh, so what it's done is it makes it incredibly apparent when someone didn't read it in advance. Got it. Like, what? everyone's worried that the person's going to, like, cheat. I'm like, I want them to cheat. You mean they're going to spend hours and hours and hours before the interview preparing because I gave them the information? Well, that found, that sounds like the kind of person I want to work with versus the person who didn't even read it. And I was like, oh, you sent me the questions? I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> Good to know you, you know? Hired. <laughs> because it just shows, like, how much they care. And, look, I, I get it. Like, I can say something like that and at the same time be like, Who knows, they just might've been rushing to the interview. I had one the other day where the person didn't really prepare and she was like, look, my kid's been up sick for the last two days and I wasn't able to, I said, all good, no problem. Go read the questions, get some time, do the interview as a loom, since you have everything and send it to us and then we'll decide if we go forward, right? So there's always gonna be situations when people can't, but it's also incredibly clear when the person just like showed up and they're like, Hey, wait, what job am I applying for? (laughs) What what was this for again? And those are just like, okay, look, we're going to put in the same proportionate effort that you did. And I am going to take that as an indicator of the amount of effort you'd put if you got this job, because, you know, we put in a lot of effort into trying to prime you and get you ready for it. So, you know, yeah, you had your chance, you could have prepared. And then, you know, and I think you got to, interviews are go both ways. Companies are, it's expensive to run interviews. And so- you know, people got to put in the effort. So I'd say it's helped me. It's made it much easier to, to like to find the wrong person. It's made it a little harder to find the right person because now they can prepare. But I'm actually okay with that because what I've seen is traditionally you get people who can, who can think on their feet and they're really good at that. But then internally we talk about it as people who think to talk and people who talk to think. I'm a person who talks to think. So interviews for me are kind of okay. The risk is, I'm processing in real time, so I could say some terrible things, not in terms of ugly, but just like things that I don't actually mean that are quite raw and uncooked and aren't best representative of my thought because, and I gave someone that feedback in an interview the other day. It's like, I could tell you're a talk to thinker. Slow down a little. Do a little bit of thinking to talk. But then the inverse is, I think, hurtful for people in interviews when they need to think to talk. And you're not seeing the best of them. And you're hurting yourself in terms of being able to get a good candidate, kind of, you know, correlative a little bit with like introversion, extroversion, but yeah, and I, I think we're missing out by seeing how some people could be great. I can see that, I agree. All right, anything else we should cover that people should know about interviewing comp behind the scenes that's like a good nugget that they might not have known otherwise? Make sure you ask if there's any reservations about your candidacy, That is, been- <laughs> <laughs> You know, I gave someone that feedback in real time the other day. They asked me that question and I said, you know what, if I were you, I wouldn't ask that question anymore because what you're doing is, I basically verbatim said what you said. It's like, you've just ended this interview on me thinking about all the reasons I don't want to work with you. So don't ask that anymore.
0: I love how pervasive it has become. And I love how certain managers, one of my favorite managers, one of the best managers ever, I love that her response is, my concern is that you take TikTok career job search advice from unauthorized sources. Do you want to ask a different question? And I was like, (laughs) That is brilliant. (laughs) Um, And when I made a post about it on LinkedIn, of course, I had like people very uptight saying, oh, that manager is putting someone in a a rough situation, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, she does it in an open, jokingly way to indicate that this was not a big thing, but that, you know, and in in almost every case, they're like, busted. I would give this. So I think this is something that I find a lot of candidates don't realize and don't recognize. And it's hard to be empathetic because when we're through the interview process and the more excited we get, the more we dare to dream and the more we start thinking about it, the more we think about that, the high end of the salary range that that we're going to get and boasting our LinkedIn, you always have to remember there are anywhere between five to 12 of you. Um, so anytime someone comes to me and says, I was so disappointed, I was a perfect fit for the role. I have no idea why I was declined. I'm like, there are always 12 to 13 fits for the role and what i always try to tell people is especially for people that try to push so much for feedback like you know why don't companies give candidate feedback i'm like i have been in thousands of manager debrief sessions where they agonize for days between three people and it is not that two people didn't have something it's that one person did one person had the right thing did the, said the exact thing, what had the exact situation that we were trying to solve. Or in certain cases, it's hey, this is a muscle that I want to learn myself that this person has that I want to bring on. And so we always feel so terrible being rejected. But what I what I tell people, especially when they're rejected, is to try to think it from the company's perspective that you did nothing wrong. And that in many cases, managers will say, I if I could hire all three, I would hire all three. All three all three of these people are great. Um, and now I suddenly remember my last question. So uh Coinbase in 2021 made waves because 2021 was when uh, the job market became the party of the century and candidates had unprecedented level level of opportunity and financial growth. And I was so excited for them because people all of a sudden had more career growth and career opportunity, uh, were ability to make like life-changing amounts of money. And then all the negotiation experts came out and they were like, negotiate every effing thing. Negotiate the size of your goddamn business cards. Negotiate for your cell phone (laughs) bill. Negotiate that you could work remotely and negotiate that you can have an emotional support peacock and an $80,000 annual retention bonus. Um, And then I appreciated that Coinbase came out and said, we are done negotiating. We're not doing this anymore. Our offer is going to be fair market value. We're going to inform you of how we reach there. And then this is the offer and you can take it or leave it. I don't want to correlate that to Coinbase then being destroyed. I think the two are probably unrelated. But I did appreciate that that uh, company kind of drew a line in the sand. So when you said before that you know it's just one number, do you ever allow for negotiation above like a level sort of thing, or is it just this is the offer at seventy five thousand? We think we've appropriately leveled you. That's it.
1: We're open to the discussion on level, right? It's like you know we have six levels, three steps each, and we had this happen. You know, it's, uh, the position was a four three, so it's kind of like what we had budgeted. The person came in and said, "Look, I I think I'm a this." And then it becomes a 5-1. And then the thought process is like, do we need a 5-1, right? Because if the person's getting a 5-1 salary, but we need a 4-3 job, then we're just gonna have resentment, right? We're like, we're overpaying for what we didn't need. Or then do we kind of like rewrite the JD? And I think like the mistake that companies made, and we've made this in the past is, you sort of like fall for the upsell, but then you're like, wait a second, if that was the budget I was gonna use, I almost like the most appropriate and diligent thing to do is to reopen the position at that budget, right? Like when you go to buy a car and like, well, for for 10K more, you can get this one. Well, it's like, oh, well, and you do it, but then you're like, wait a second, if I would have applied that to my entire buying process, well, then it totally changed the market on what I could have bought. And But and, you know, on the flip side of the candidate, you gotta be mindful of then like the pressure that puts on you could deliver.
0: And what candidates will refuse to acknowledge, and they get so pissed off me when I say this, and I'm like, I I will get all of you to accept the truth at some point. We are all very overpaid for the first six months. Like, we're not doing our jobs. We're onboarding, we're fumbling, we're attending meetings, we're getting set up for systems and whatnot. The company is the one who's taking the risk. So I am definitely of the mindset that it is in the best interest to the company to aim a little bit lower and then graduate from there. Though I'm the first one to admit companies are notoriously terrible at that. It's not as though they have a guaranteed three-month check-in system. They're like, oh, no, we'll take care of that. And then you get your 2.8% increase the following year. So like I get both sides. My whole thought, though, process on it, um, I do not like when people try to negotiate levels, though I think with smaller organizations you have that flexibility, but you just described something that to me, really highlights why people don't understand our job. That our consideration is what makes the most sense for the most amount of people and what can we do to minimize negative impact to others. So one of my most frequently hated things is having a manager come to me and say, I've had this open role, it's one of our biggest accounts. We've found this perfect person. They come from Amazon, they're more expensive. The only way we can afford them is if we bring them up at a level higher. It's gonna be a senior analyst. And I'm like, All right, but you're gonna displace these seven other people that have been here for a like, Okay, well, I gotta do well management when we'll get there. And then Here we are in the next promotion cycle, and now uh, everyone's underpaid, and now we have to promote everyone. I'm like, you brought this problem in. Um, you know, so anytime you let and this is why when people on LinkedIn especially say levels are absolutely negotiable, I'm like, we put so much effort and larger companies, I think smaller companies have far more flexibility, but the sheer amount of work, volume, science, data positioning, mapping, review to accurately determine levels and what level growth looks like. So to have someone like listen to some LinkedIn influencer of two years of experience, demands that you need to be a senior business analyst. And we have clear five levels of delineation drives me up a wall because what you're saying is, I don't really care about internal equity. I just
1: need what's good for me and
0: I don't care who it displaces. But you will care if it's the next hire.
1: So I, we'll end on this one, titles, because you brought it up. So one of my co-founders from, from Case and I, I think kind of invented this language that we thought was real, but we made a distinction between like symbolic title and functional title. So- Cosmetic and internal in a corporate speak. Okay, so cosmetic would be like product designer.
0: Product designer, North America,
1: lead of majestic art. Internal profile, designer too. What about like the, what I'm calling symbolic levels like director, lead. It's really just like a word to represent where you s- sit in the stack. Now, those are all over the place, right? Like we used to have this, and and changes in the words, like the semantics have different values in different industries. So I'll give you an example. At WeWork, this was a huge problem because in real estate, everybody's a VP. You could be like fresh out of school and you're a VP, right? It's like, you're a VP of this. In engineering, like VP is like the rare air, like nobody gets VP. And we were trying as a company to kind of like standardize, and it was just a this debate that would go in circles and circles and circles, because ultimately I was on the camp of like, look, let's just do which one is right for which function. Understanding that certain brought a bunch of chaos into the company, but like, but like as a candidate, well, one, I'd love to hear like your view as like the internals of like what's going on there. And then what are some of the solves? And then as, as a person who negotiates against that, like where are the opportunities? So this to me is one of the
0: benefits of like that whole compensation modeling and sterile job family, because there's science to it and it's amazing. The term lead just indicates that they have some level of authority, but it is not what we call a formal title. The way that most corporations utilize it is really scientific and I think it's great. IC can go up from like junior IC to like principal IC, up to like eight or nine levels. Then you have manager and manager split into two functions. It's a process manager or a people manager. And the the, the designation that we utilize is a comma. So human resources manager manages the, the HR process for a particular function. They do not manage people. Manager comma product is someone who is responsible for a product and has a team underneath them. Director manages managers. And it's the same sort of nomenclature. If it's functional director, it means that they have a certain level of responsibility and scope and independent judgment. If it's director comma something, then that means that they have different disciplines that report to them. Um, and then it goes the same way up to vice president. Now what's funny is in your example for like real estate and finance that like vice presidents right out of college, When you do the job mapping, you're looking at like associate coordinator specialist levels internally. So like Radford doesn't care what you call them externally, but they'll map say, okay, so it's two to three years of experience. This is their level of scope responsibility. We don't care what you call them, but we're mapping them internally to a real estate specialist. I love the titling system that the bigger companies utilize because it makes so much consistency and sense. Um, The only uh, sort of thorns in it is then we have what we call um, industry titles. So like a creative director or an art director is a very standard industry title, but it is not usually what we would consider a director level of scope. And then we have really annoying ones like uh, someone who manages a group of account managers is manager, account manager, or manager, project manager. So things like that are silly, but I love that there's a very clear distinction and delineation that demonstrates with that increase of responsibility and scope, there is a determination and then there's weird So all lead means is that you have some level of responsibility, but it could be at a manager, it could be at IC, it could be a director. The one that drives me up a goddamn wall is head of because there's no designation for it. There is, are are you ahead of the the fun committee on Friday nights putting together the pizza party? Are are you ahead of an entire marketing function? Like you should utilize one of those designated titles.
1: Gotcha. I'm gonna have to fix that. We use head of.
0: I will gladly help you with that and audit it for you.
1: Good. Yeah. Because yeah, I think it's like it's helpful for clarity. And I think a lot. I mean, look, I, little companies get to pay in titles. It's kind of a sort kind of a funny thing you can do because titles do have value in the market because externally people don't know. So what's your advice to people if a company didn't have rigor around their title and like in terms of like their day-to-day they would do something that was sort of bigger than what their title was which would have value in the market but what do you tell people to do i tell people the
0: way that they decide to advertise themselves does not have to immediately align with how the company identified themselves mm-hmm. so uh there's one person who i'm working with who is technically listed as a marketing specialist Her job family role, according to a Radford or a Culpepper or even an Aon, would be a senior manager of performance marketing. So I told her on her LinkedIn and on her resume, she should put that. And she was like, but that's not my job title. I'm like, first of all, your LinkedIn is yours. A company can't, you can put whatever you want. A company can say, hey, that's not right. And you'd be like, go screw yourself. I could put that on the CEO of Google. Like um, Google can't tell me no, Um, it's my LinkedIn page. Now, of course there comes with risk if I try to apply to roles, obviously it's being dishonest. What I tell people is that for things like background checks, that's where the nervousness comes from because they do verify titles. But there is such an understanding that companies utilize different titling systems. The only times I've ever seen it come back is if there's a huge, what we call job level, which is IC manager, director, VP. Those are job levels. So, if you are a marketing specialist and you indicate on your resume that you're a senior director of performance marketing, then that's going to come back as some sort of mismatch. And in many cases, companies are just going to ask for an explanation. If the explanation seems reasonable, then it's fine. If it seems like you were uh, purposely overinflating it and that you kind of sold the company, then they may end up pulling the offer
1: based on dishonesty. So, here's a funny I, I keep saying last question, but let's explain to people how an employment check actually works. Okay. Because these are, I mean, at least I have my view of how I've seen it, yours is going to be far more robust, but a company is going to do an employment check. What, As like the candidate, this might seem like some woo woo crazy thing. Like what's that actually look like? It is so less intimidating than people. People freak
0: out so much for it. I'm like, you have no idea how like boring and sterile this is. In most cases, there's actually, there's, there was a guy on TikTok. I have to see if I can find him. He is paid by big four companies to do in depth research because of the amount of exposure. So he has had, like, he makes videos saying that he has had to ruin people's lives because they found, like, in one case, he said he found, like, 10 years ago, the person was, like, a white supremacist and attended, like, uh, Blue Lives Matter things and was like putting, um, you know, I can't breathe and like, was wearing the, you know, next time breathe, like really horrifying things. And people try to hide it, but they pay this guy huge amounts of money to uncover the truth of people.
1: And these are senior positions, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, and this so this is extraordinarily rare, kind of one-off things in which there's so much caution to the exposure. In most cases, what background checks cover is you that you are not a criminal, um, so that your social security number does not pop up with any criminal activity. Um, second is that they double check your social security number to the companies that you've indicated that you've worked with to indicate that you have. They will double check with companies that you have the title and the dates of service. And in many cases, they don't really care about the title provided that it's in the same family, it's fine.
1: But even that, how do they do that? There's no like public record of everywhere I've ever worked.
0: So what will happen is if you, so if I was applying to Netflix, Netflix wanted to make me an off, and they're like, we have to do a background check. Spotify would make me sign a form saying what I could and couldn't share. And then the number, and then Netflix will call Spotify and say, yep, we have permission to share this. We have permission to share this. We don't have permission to share
1: this. Because that, would, like, they literally pick up the phone and call and like talk to some HR person. Or it's like, hey, Daniel Space worked there from 2000 this to 2000 that. Yes. His title was that. Yes. It's like that old school, right? Or maybe it's even an email. So it's done in email
0: every once in a while. I have seen a few places do it over eDocs. Now, the worst part and the reason there's so many people that um that send me messages saying, I got an offer, they did a background check, it's been three weeks. I'm like, it's your education. Education will only do it through facts. So it is mind numbingly stupid. Um, and the fact that like this person had 18 years of experience, they graduated in like 2002, but like they couldn't finish the background check until this silly little CUNY school responded back to a fax that no one was paying attention to to verify it. It is always education that is holding it up.
1: Like some human being is gonna like call and do a long conversation. Like wait, Daniel said he was the director. He was a manager. That doesn't happen. That's like not a thing. Again, it's not, unless it's like egregious and the person just like doesn't believe it. But honestly, that would almost even come out in the interview if they were that skeptical. It's not the
0: company itself who's calling the new company. It's a third-party vendor.
1: <laughs> right, that's another thing.
0: I'm um, calling on behalf of Spotify, we double-checking Daniel Space. He said he was a director HRBP. Like Spotify would say, in our system, he's listed as principal HRBP. So like, that's, a, all right, it's relatively equivalent. That third party doesn't care. They don't know our titling systems. They're just going to say, Wasn't director HRBP, was lead principal HRBP. And that's essentially it. Now, the one thing that is up in the air, and there's interesting little case laws about it, is certain companies have decided to ask, is the employee rehirable? And that is the cause of contention. So there's a lot of laws that protect companies from being able to physically uh, prevent a company from pursuing other employment. So they can't give any kind of negative reference. And the way around that is asking if the person is rehirable. Like, would you hire them again? Correct.
1: Got it. Because I I get asked that all the time when I do references for people. Like, hey, would you hire this person again? Have you ever said no? Yeah, once. Do you think they got the job or do you know if they got the job as a result of that? They didn't list me as a reference. It was someone who like did back channel. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which I really didn't feel good about. But I was like, I can't. Got to be honest. It's either yes or like if you don't answer, they get it. So I kind of gave like a no with caveats. <laughs> I'm not prepared to answer that question at this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan, this was awesome. I hope everyone got a lot of value. This I, I feel like we we met the mission. We gave a lot of hiring behind the scenes input. Very much. This was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm so happy I got to learn a little bit more about your organization too. Awesome. Well, I feel like we'll do another one. We will, we will find topics and uh, we'll talk about this, but this was great. How can everyone follow along with all your awesome content and good stuff you're putting out there.
0: Uh, Dan from HR on TikTok until we get the ban. um, I have decided to finally open a YouTube channel Uh, My Dan from HR website is actually going to be launching in May. Uh, So danfromhr.com will be a live site in May. I'm very excited. I have one whole piece of content ready for it. (laughs) It's going to be one blog so far. Uh, So I'm going to be spending the next week with ChatGPT to help to try to to bolster some of the content. Um, And I've actually hired a person who's building out YouTube because I guess um, native hosting on YouTube is actually much better for watching videos on other pages. So, um, But it will be focused primarily for college students and job seekers. Um, awesome. and then the next few things will be some products. You have a book coming? A book is launched. It's uh, The Secrets of Compensation. Uh, we got the first six chapters up and ready
1: and the next three are coming at the end of the month. Amazing. Well, this will all be in the show notes. Dan, thanks so, so much. This was awesome. It was everything I was hoping it would be in more. Same. <laughs> so much for tuning in to Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is a labor of love for me. I really love these conversations. I love exposing the hiring process, the ins and outs. We'd love your feedback, Uh, comment, email us, hello at tlhq.com, follow on LinkedIn or on TikTok where we post a lot of content and give us a like if you enjoyed it. Again, we really, really want to continue to do this, but we want you to get value out of it. That's our main goal. So please engage with us. Let us know what else you'd like to see. And if you'd like to be on the show, please let me know also, all right? Hope you enjoyed it. Talk soon.